Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number six. And uh, one quick reminder I want to mention over and over again. In fact, sometimes my son sounds, tells me that I sound like a broken record. But I want to emphasize to you that you do need to go to the Blackboard website. You do need to go ahead and download the first midterm exam study guide. I can't say it any other way except for the fact of telling you that is the first midterm exam. What I want you to do is take that study guide, make sure you read the chapters, you look up the answers, so that when you come in to take the first exam that you get 100 on it. Remember, we don't really like people that you know, get 85 and 90. We want you to get 100. In order to do that, you need to download that study guide. You need to work those things, look up all the answers. Write down where you found the answer from so you can go back and look it up again if you need to. I think part of that process of looking up, reading, writing, and just mechanically doing something helps you remember. It's the analogy I sort of like to use for that is it's like, for example, if I gave you directions verbally how to get from here to my home. Uh, you know, you'd be painting in your mind how you think maybe it would work, but if you went and you drove from here to my house back and forth four or five times, you'd probably have a pretty good idea on how to get there. So I'm trying to develop these things that help you get into that book and look these answers up. Very, very important that you do that. Um, so anyway, you want to download it. You want to print it out. You want to look the answers up. You want to make sure exactly where you found every one of those answers. You want to know what page, where you found it. Very, very important you do that because when you come in to take the exam, you can't use the study guide, but by that time if you've prepped, you're going to know exactly what to put down. The other thing I want to mention to you, too, is that for whatever reason, if any of you are watching this and think that you need to go out and buy a computer in order to download that stuff, the answer to that is no. If you come here to this campus, all you need to do is come to either the Learning Resource Center or go to the business building. We have computer labs over there. It's part of your fees that you pay to go to school here. There's no charge, no nothing to do that except for maybe printing. Um, you, we have students that are over there and instructional assistants that will walk you through that process as many times as, necess as necessary to get it. But the critical thing is, is that you learn that skill set because today, Everything that we do nowadays is on computer. Uh, you know, all the, uh, in fact, even if you're going to be showing somebody a house the, or looking up houses for somebody to want the, to take a look at that they want to buy, you're going to be on the computer system looking this stuff up. And it's very, very critical that you do that. In fact, that's why I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be giving a course for the first time uh, starting next spring called Computer Applications in Real Estate. It will be the first time it's ever been offered. It will also count, by the way, just for your own information, is one of those courses you can use for your exam or for your real estate license, uh, either sales or broker's license. So the first time, again, no other college offers that except for Sacramento City College. And uh, really great course, but that's how important it is that you know how to work these, uh, these things we call computers. Very, very important. With that, I'm going to move on. Enough of playing the old broken record over and over again. Uh, what we want to do tonight is we, last time we met or we discussed during show five, we were finishing off the actual lease slash rental application. I spent quite a bit of time going over, I believe, almost every single one of the pages in that app, not, I'm sorry, not application, but contract. What I emphasize to everybody is that contract is something that you always want to make sure you're using the most current contract when you're dealing with a client. That, for example, this one has been designed and developed, I believe, by the uh, California Association of Realtors. 
And those California Association of Realtors has probably six or eight attorneys on staff that are doing nothing, I believe, except looking at all of these documents on a regular basis, getting input, making sure that everything is current, that you're not having anybody sign something that's illegal or not current or doesn't reflect the current law. So that's why you always want to work with a current document. Also remember I emphasized the fact that this document includes not only if you're going to lease the property, which might be for a year or longer, but also if you're going to just rent on a month-to-month basis. And remember the title of the, of the agreement was Residential Lease or Rental Agreement. Okay, If you're going to do a commercial building, it's a different agreement. Okay. Now what we want to do is move on to the next thing is, is, is uh, the actual what we call Application for Rent Form. I'm going to take a little bit of time and go over that. This becomes important in two places. Number one is the fact that, and I'm always going to be sort of talking to you as if you are the real estate agent that is taking this particular application. In other words, somebody has hired you to help them rent out this property, and you're going to get paid a fee for it. So I'm going to take and explain some of the things that are in this uh, agreement and uh, and then we'll move on from there. So I'm going to be moving over here to my document camera. And again, this agreement, and I'm going to be zooming in and out. Keep in mind that this agreement, again, is created by or maintained or reviewed by the California Association of Realtors. That's who makes sure this is always up to date. This is called an application to rent and a screening fee. So keep in mind, this is what we're talking about. When people initially get ready to rent or lease a property, typically what will happen is they're going to respond to an ad in the newspaper or a sign on the outside of the, of the property. You know, They're going to go up, they're going to knock on the door, they're going to make a phone call, they're going to make some kind of a contact. If you're the real estate agent, you're going to meet with them, you're going to take them through and show them the property. You know, you're going to show them what it looks like. If it happens to be an apartment building and you have a number of apartments for sale, you may be showing them the one-bedroom, two-bedroom, three-bedroom, whatever. As a result, after you've done all of that, the next natural step that you are going to do is you're going to have them fill out a rental application. This rental application is going to be gathering some specific personal information about them. And you're going to use that rental application to help you make a decision on whether or not you want to rent to this person. Okay, so I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that's in this application. So first of all, again, notice that it's a rental application for rent slash screening fee because the fee might be something where you're going to charge them for like a background check, credit check, unlawful detainer check, whatever it happens to be. So you may want the client to pay for that. Okay, and that depends. If you're in a small, uh, you know, if you're in a large apartment complex, you may be dealing with several of these a day. If you're in a small, you have one house to rent every couple of years, you might be dealing with it maybe only a couple times every year. Anyway, I'm going to move this around here. Um, let me see, and so I can actually see it myself. It says the applicant is completing the application, check one, as they're going to complete it as a tenant. Okay, or they're going to be a co-tenant. Tenant means that you're the only occupant that's going to live there. Co-tenant means that you may be renting it to husband or wife. Okay, it's not uncommon, especially before people get married, that it'd be two friends that would get together, college friends that would rent the place. One thing that's important for them to remember is that once they sign the lease, they're both obligated on that lease. 
So one of the things that people want you should know is, or they should know, is that, listen, if your buddy doesn't pay the rent, you're still obligated to pay the rent. Okay? So anyway, you'd run this as a background check. This is where you would have the application, and you would put the name, the title of the property, in other words, an address or a unit number, you know, unit number one or an address of the property, what the rent amount was, how much per, like per month, per week, whatever, and then the proposed move-in date, which would be like, say, May 1st, May 2nd, May 15th, whatever. That's where you're going to start this. Now we're asking the people for personal information. One thing I want to mention to you that's interesting is once you have, in order for you to run these background checks, you're going to need something like that's going to be able to identify them, like a Social Security number or a driver's license. One thing that you should let the client know that is that if they don't put something down on here, it's probably going to show up on that report anyway. So part of what you're going to do is, for example, if you're filling this out, the client's filling it out, and they put down that they have no bad credit, they've never been thrown out of their apartment, they have a job, everything is hunky-dory, and then you run the credit or background check and you find out none of that is true. They're lying to you. Okay? They were, they were, they were asked to leave an apartment you know, because they didn't pay the rent. They have a very bad credit history, and maybe their job is a little bit shaky. What they've essentially done is they've lied to you. And the concept here is if they lie to you now, then the chances of them lying to you in the future are going to probably pre be pretty high. So you're looking to see whether the client is telling the truth or not. I have rented to people before that have had financial issues to deal with, and they've been excellent tenants, and I've rented to them for the years. But they've been up front. They've told me up front. I've had a bankruptcy. I've had some kind of financial problem. And then you're going to make that decision. But if they're lying, then you know you're going to have a problem. Okay, after this, you're going to need to have their name, their Social Security number, things like driver's license, the state it's in, their phone number, homework, okay, their email address. These are all personal information. If they have pets or not, as I talked about the last time, you need to know if they have pets. If you're representing an owner of a property, that owner may very well tell you, listen, I do not want to rent to somebody that has pets because the last time I had somebody that had pets, you know, they ruined the carpet. You know, the odor was terrible. The cat shed hair all over the place, and I had a difficult time re-renting it again because there's a lot of people that are allergic to that. So you want to know, do you have any pets? Okay? And if they say they have no pets, they have no pets. If they say they have pets, then you have to figure out, is the landlord willing to take them, yes or no? Okay, then the next thing you need to know here is their automobile, make, model, license plate number, and any other vehicles. Now, the reason why you also want to know this, too, especially if you're dealing in an apartment building, is you want to know how many cars they're going to need to park, okay? Also, as a result of that, you're going to want to know that information because, you know, if, say, somebody is parking a car there and you're not sure whether or not that car, in other words, most of the time, like in apartment complexes, you have a space. You know, if you're in apartment 10, you're going to have spot 10. And if all of a sudden another car is parked there, you may, and say especially if you have security going around, they may be looking at a roster and saying, that car is not supposed to be there. It's not on my list. I'm going to have it towed away. <laughs> so you want to know what cars, what vehicles they're going to park on the premises. It becomes very important that way. Hotels ask you the same thing for the same reason. Okay, they want to know who to contact in the form of an emergency, their address. Uh, this is you're asking them some question here. Has the applicant ever had an unlawful detainer? Have they ever had where they've been staying there and they've had a being essentially evicted? Yes or no? 
If they have, then what's the reason why? In other words, they could have had that because they had some form of a dispute with the landlord and it really wasn't their fault. Who knows? But at least they'll tell you why. Has the applicant ever been, ever been convicted of or pleaded guilty to any kind of a felony, yes or no? Felony or things like, you know, stealing stuff, you know, things like that, you know, things that you've gone, yes or no, okay? And if you have, what's the explanation, okay? Has the applicant proposed document ever been asked to move out of a residence for any reason, yes or no? Now, you may say, well, now, here's the thing. You're asking that question there. Later on, you're going to ask them where they've lived, you know, in the last so many years. And the reason why is if they say to you they've never been asked to move, and then on the, on the next page they ask you for, you're asking them where they lived, and they give you an address, and you call the previous landlord, and they say, my goodness, yeah, we had to have them move out. They didn't pay the rent for six months. They left the place. It was a disaster. You know, that would might be indicate to you maybe you wouldn't want to rent to them. Okay? So this is where you're getting their residence history. Where have they lived? Names of landlords, uh, people to contact. Okay? This is their income or their employment. Uh, it doesn't, it stands to reason that if you're going to be renting to somebody, you want to be pretty well rest assured that you know that they have the money to pay the monthly rent. Now, it could be if it's two people renting, it may take both of their incomes to make the rent payment. Or if it's like a husband and wife, or if it's two uh, college students going to college, maybe both of them have part-time jobs and you need both of them to make the payment, but you need to know that. Okay? And how long they've had the job, is it stable, are they going to keep it, whatever. Because the hardest thing to do is to evict people. That is a really tough job to do, uh, and, you, and it doesn't happen easily, and it's very hard to detect because usually what will happen is if somebody doesn't pay the rent, they usually will either not send it to you or they will call you and tell you that they'll have it to you in the next couple days, and a couple days lead to a week, which leads to two weeks, leads, leads to a month or two months. In the meantime, your bank that you're making your payments to is standing there saying, where is my payments on the loan. So you're financially obligated to continue to make payments on the property even if your tenant is not. Okay, so you want to kind of keep that in mind. Next page. This is asking you here for credit information. Now what many people don't realize is that once you have their social security number and their driver's license number, you pull a credit history, it's going to show like they have a Macy's account, is it current? Do they run behind in payments? Is it a Sears account? It's going to have all that listed. So what you're really looking for here is whether or not they're telling you again the truth. Okay? Whether they're telling you the truth. Uh, banks. And then this is going to be personal re references. Personal references would be somebody else that you could call to verify, you know, that they're in good standing. This would be nearest relatives like mother, father, sister, brothers, aunts, or uncles. Okay? And then finally, they're going to sign down the bottom. One thing that they need to do is that you normally cannot run these checks without having their signature. Okay? In other words, you have, to, you, you have to produce a document that says that you have been authorized to run this check because they're disclosing to you personal information. You know, they're disclosing to you driver's license, social security, a lot of stuff. So you need to have their permission to do that. If you don't have that signed off, you can't do it. Okay? 
So that takes care of that part. Okay. The next uh, thing that we want to talk about is how leases may be terminated or rental agreements may be terminated. And what I'm going to do is this talks about termination of the lease or the rental agreement. And then it goes through the different conditions in which this lease can be terminated. The first thing that you can have starting up here at the top is the expiration of the term. So in other words, there's no conflict. The tenant has paid the rent on time. You have received the rent on time. Everybody is happy. It just comes to the natural end of the contract. So in other words, if they were supposed to move out on the 31st of, uh, of August, I think there's 31 days in August, the 31st of August, and they have paid and everything is current and everybody is happy, that's just an expiration of the contract. Okay, so that's one way it can be terminated. The second thing is due to what we call lack of quiet possession. Lack of quiet possession means that the tenant has the right and the expectation that once you rent that place to them, that it's their place. That if you want to go in and fix something like a broken water heater or a toilet or a stove that's not working, that you, ha you get their permission to go into the place. You just don't walk in when you want to walk in. So they have an expectation and a right. If they don't have that right, if they feel that you're harassing them, okay, then that's a way that they could say, you know what? You know, I rented this, and I, I thought this was my place, but the landlord's always down here pestering and bugging me, and I just don't have, I don't have the use of the property the way I want. So that's a way that it can be terminated. Okay. The next one is something called repairs for habitability. And I'll talk about that in a minute because there's minimum what we call habitability requirements. In other words, there's an expectation on the land, that the landlord is supposed to keep the place in good condition. There's also an expectation on the part that the tenant is supposed to do certain things. So we're going to talk about in a minute what that is. If the landlord doesn't do their part, then the tenant can turn around and terminate the, 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 the rental agreement of the lease. If, if the landlord doesn't do it, conversely, if the tenant doesn't keep their part up, the landlord can terminate. So there's an expectation that, you know, that everybody's going to do their job. And if they don't, then you can terminate it. Again, not easy to do, but those are grounds to do it. Okay. The next one is something called eviction by law. Essentially what that happens is there's been something that happened, has happened in the contract. The people haven't paid their rent on time. You have found out that you thought you were renting it to, say, somebody that was going to live there, a husband, a wife, and a family, and you find out that, no, they're not. They're actually using it to, uh, to run a business out of there, you know, uh, or they are doing something illegal you know, like maybe selling drugs, they're doing something like that, and you, or just not paying rent and you want to have them evicted. So it's called an unlawful or eviction by law. The next one that they can do it by is where they just surrender it. They surrender. They just say, you know, I abandon. In other words, if the tenant just all of a sudden one day you go over there to look at it and they leave, they abandon it, okay, and it's obvious that they abandon it, okay, then that terminates the lease because they're gone. So, for example, if you find out that, uh, you know, in the middle of the night there was a U-Haul truck that pulled up to the place and took all the furniture out of there, and now they are gone and you can't find them, and it's obvious that they abandoned it, then, then that's the end of the agreement. They abandoned it and left. 
again, it's difficult sometimes to figure out if they have or they haven't, you know, so you have to find out. Uh, breach of conditions would be another one. So breach of conditions means you have this lease or rental agreement where, you know, the tenant says they're going to do something, the landlord says they're going to do something. If they breach any of those contractual agreement, which means they didn't do what they were supposed to do. The landlord said that they would always make sure that the tenant had hot water. And now all of a sudden they breached the agreement because the water heater is broken now for three weeks and it still hasn't been repaired. That's a breach of contract. Okay. Uh, another breach of contract on the form of the tenant would be that the tenant has told you that, uh, uh, that they're just going to live there as a family and you find out in reality they're going to use it as a boarding house. Okay, they're actually, you know, have people living in there, you know, that are not related to the family. That's why you want to find out who's going to live there. That would be another region, breach of condition. Or you find out that they did something to it. In other words, you told them, listen, don't make any alterations. And you go in there and find out that they decided that they needed uh, a bigger bedroom, so they took out one of the walls. And you say, no, you can't do that. Okay, I'm just talking about some of the things that I've seen. And then finally, if the premises is destroyed due to fire, wind, rain, natural causes, uh, whatever, if the place burns down, the contract's over. <laughs> okay? So if there's any kind of destruction of the premises, you know. And then we're always looking, you know, like, I mean, you can have where maybe it rained and a bush hit the window and broke the window. That's not a destruction of the premises. Okay? Uh, maybe the... Uh, somebody left the door open and some rain came in and things got wet. That's not necessarily destruction of premises. A roof, a tree fell on the roof and put a big hole in the roof. That could be considered to be destruction of premises. In other words, you have to kind of move the family out of there right now so that you can find a place that's safe and secure for them to live. Okay? So it's always a, you know, you're kind of running a balancing act, you know, at what point. But if you're, if you have something where the family has to start moving out, to do all the repair work, then you're talking about some form of destruction of the premises. Okay. A couple things that I want to point out to you, and I'm going to read down below to make sure. This one thing, termination, as we talked about before, um, they give you some examples below this. They say, you know, you know, they say like termination, expiration of the term is the most common thing. You know, just expires. It's over with. The people move out. Everybody is happy. That's the most common way that any of these agreements end. The second one is quiet position. I'm going to kind of read this because I think this can end up being a little bit confusing, but it says a tenant is entitled to quiet possession and enjoyment of the premises without interference. The lease or rental agreement is made with the assumption that the tenant, and then I think it goes on to the next page here, the tenant We'll have use of the premises and enjoy quiet, uninterrupted stay. Okay? The landlord has the responsibility to maintain quiet on the premises for his or her tenants and must not harass them unduly. Failure in either responsibility can give the tenant grounds for terminating the lease. Notice it says not terminate automatically. It gives them grounds. In other words, listen, landlord. My intention was when I moved into this apartment complex is that, you know, you were not going to be in here bugging me. The place was going to be quiet. I could sleep during the day. It's a nightmare. You know, there's all kinds of noise going on. You're bugging me all the time. The pool doesn't work, whatever it happens to be, okay? So it says the California Code permits the landlord to enter. Okay, so this tells you when the landlord can enter into the property. The California Code permits the landlord to enter in the tenant's property uh, 
unit under the following conditions. Number one, if there's an emergency. In other words, if you get a call or become aware of the fact that, hey, you know what? The next door neighbor was telling me there's smoke coming out of the house. They drove by and the lights are flickering. It looks like it's sparking. You know, it appears to me that a tree fell down on the roof and they're not there. Those are emergencies. You have to go in and fix something, okay? Uh, number two, necessary repairs. But one thing they don't say here is necessary repairs with the permission of the tenant. So that means that if the tenant calls you and says there's a problem that needs to be fixed, then your very next question would be what would be a convenient time for me to come over or for a repair person to come over and fix the problem, okay? You also could have in some cases where you may schedule maintenance. I've done that, you know, where you're going to have somebody come in and maybe change the filters in the house or do uh, maybe clean the pool, mow the grass, do something to keep things up, okay? So those things are scheduled. Next would be to show the premises to prospective tenants, buyers, and appraisers. When you have this place and you're renting it out to somebody, before they move out, it's standard practice that you're probably going to turn around and put ads in the paper to try to re-rent the house or re-rent the apartment. The ideal situation that you want is to have the people move out in the morning and have the new tenants move in in the afternoon so you don't have any vacancy. You want to get as close to that ideal situation. I have actually had where I've had a house where what's happening is, is the old tenants are coming out the front door and the new tenants are moving stuff in through the garage simultaneously at the same time. Okay, and usually you're doing that, you know, because people are having the, the, the moving truck show up on time. You know, there's a lot of things that happen during that period of time. In fact, what I have found that that's a good time for you to be there and make sure you can do anything that can help get this thing taken care of. I mean, I've done things. I've actually helped people move furniture. I've made uh, trips to the garbage dump to take things away that they need. I mean, there's a lot of things that would help because guess what? If I can get them, the old ones to move out and the new ones to move in, I'm not sitting there losing any rent money. So it helps me to do that, okay? Uh, also, when they're in there, you may want to sell it. So, again, this is in the rental agreement where you tell them that you're going to be doing this, but you're going to be asking for their permission to do this. That's another thing I want to bring up, too. If you don't have the tenant's permission, if you're doing this and you're not agreeing or you're fighting with it, you think about it. If you're trying to show the property to a prospective tenant, you want the place to look as nice as it possibly can. If the tenant is mad at you, they're not going to worry about vacuuming it up. They're not going to worry about doing the dishes. If they like you and you've been working with them, they're going to do everything in their power to try to help you because you're trying to help them. Another thing, too, is appraisers. You're going to find out if you have rental property, there might be times in which you may need to refinance the property, and, the, and, and when you do that, the appraiser has to come in and probably do a walkthrough, do some measuring, take some photographs. So, again, that's another reason why you would want to have access to do that. That would be a reason why. Uh, another reason why you can go in there is if you've detected if the tenant has abandoned the premises. And, again, ab abandoned would be where you knew when they moved in that they had a house full of furniture. And all of a sudden, you get the word that, you know, something strange on the house. Usually you hear this from the tenants, or not tenants, but fellow uh, people in the neighborhood, you know, like, you know, because you maybe know them, they'll call you up and say, 
do you know the house is sitting there and the lights have been on for the last couple days? Or the garage door is open? Or I saw somebody come by with a U-Haul truck in the middle of the night, and you come to find out that there's no furniture in the house. That might be an expectation <laughs> that, it's, that it's abandoned. Okay? And then again, with a court order, if, you've, if they've not paid rent and you've done all the appropriate things and now you have a court order, then you can, uh, you can go ahead and go into the house. But again, that's legally allowing you to do that. Okay? I do want to talk about this habit ability, if I'm pronouncing this correctly. This little diagram or a little thing in your book here talks about what this is. Okay? And I think what's important about understanding this is because we read these articles a lot in the newspaper. We see news stories all the time where some landlord hasn't been taking care of the premises correctly and the tenants don't want to pay the rent. And what they're going to do is they're going to put this into some kind of an impound account or something until the landlord goes and makes the repairs. Typically, that's usually done in areas where uh, in low-income areas where people can't afford to go anyplace else. There's no other place they can go but they're living in really, really terrible conditions. And so usually what they'll do is they'll band together and say, listen, until the landlord takes and makes the repairs, we're not going to pay the rent. Okay, but you've got to make sure you do everything correctly when you do that. Okay, landlord's legal requirements. What is the landlord required to do by law, okay, according to this? And this is a section of the civil code, okay? Number one, the... Um, they, the landlord, as a minimum habitability requirement, it has to have effective waterproofing of the roof, exterior walls, including uh, unbroken windows and doors, meaning that if the windows are broken, if the roof is leaking, uh, if the door is leaking, water is coming in, that, is, that house is not habitable. That property is not habitable. You do not live in an apartment or in a house with the expectation that the minute it starts to rain, you're going to run around with a bunch of water buckets and try to catch the water. And not only that, but nowadays that water also gets into the structure and causes something called mold. And mold grows like almost instantaneously. It does. It grows very quickly, and there are a lot of people that have a lot of problems with mold. So, again, if it's not up to that condition, that's that's it's an expectation that it's going to be not have leaks. Number two, that the plumbing and the gas facilities installation are maintained in a good working order, meaning that the plumbing pipes don't leak, the garbage disposal works, the dishwasher works, the toilets flush correctly, they don't overrun, you know, the sinks are not dripping water. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, that you have that. And that they should be in good working order. In other words, it shouldn't be like, oh, by the way, you know, i got to go over here to use the toilet and jiggle the handle five times in order to stop it from running. That is not working correctly. The landlord needs to correct that. And that's a very easy fix, by the way. If anybody tries to tell you any baloney, that's an easy thing to correct. It's laziness if they don't want to fix it. Things like that, sinks that leak, pipes that leak, those are all easy fixes. It's just a matter of getting the right component, going down, spend the money, and fixing it. It's not that hard to do. Okay, the water supply, the water supply capable of hot and cold running water, the fixtures and the connections to sewer and disposal systems must work, meaning that, you know, your sewer system shouldn't be backing up. You shouldn't have any kind of crazy odors in the house. Uh, you shouldn't be turning on the water and finding out, hey, you know what, if we don't, if we can't get our shower done within about three minutes, you know, you know, you know, uh, w the water will turn cold. 
there's an expectation that you should be able to take, for example, a normal shower. If you're not able to get enough hot water, what that means is that the water tank is probably old, has so much sediment in the bottom of the tank that instead of having, you know, like a 40-gallon tank, you've got something that's substantially less than 40 gallons because what's happening is you've got a bunch of junk in the bottom of the tank and you need a new tank, okay? So, again, that's something that can be fixed, okay, easily fixed. It costs money, but you've got to fix it. Uh, the he heating facilities maintain a good working order. This is another thing. You hear a lot of times, especially back east, there was just, you know, you hear where people live. Again, this is usually people that are in the low economic area are living in a place and the heating systems are not working. You find out uh, some grandma or older person died because the heating wasn't working correctly. There's an expectation that the heating system would work and the cooling systems of there there work correctly. Um, and I, I can think of pictures of this, that the building and the grounds are kept clean, sanitary, free from all accumulations of debris, filth, rubbish, and so on and so forth, rodents included. My little friends, my little uh, mice and little rats can do a heck of a lot of damage. Uh, you may not know this, but if you've got rodents around, they do things like they will eat through anything. They will eat through electrical wiring. They'll eat through plumbing lines if they can. Uh, I've had seen them, uh, especially up with people that have like barns that are up in, in, in a rural area. They'll park the car in the barn and they'll find out that the, that the rats or the mice have eaten through things like rubber hoses and stuff. They wonder why when they start the car up that all the antifreeze leaks out of the bottom of the car. It's because the mice have eaten through the, the pipes or through the uh, rubber hoses. So they cause a lot of damage. You'll have a, it's not uncommon, for example, to all of a sudden have the lights stop working, only to find out that the reason why they stop working is not the circuit breaker, it's not the fuse, is that our old friendly mouse or a rat has chewed through the wire, completely through the wire. Okay. Uh, adequate number of rubbish receptacles. What that means is that if you're like in an apartment complex and on the average, you know, the landlord goes out there and finds out that that rubbish bin that they have is filled up, you know, it's supposed to be picked up on Monday and it's usually filled up by Wednesday or Thursday and now people are laying stuff all over the place, there's an expectation that the landlord should go get another rubbish bin, okay? Now, there might be times that you may have, you know, during uh, a holiday season that you have, like Thanksgiving or something, maybe at that one time it gets over full, but it shouldn't be happening on a regular basis. It's their responsibility to do that. And that the floor, stairways, railing are maintained in good order. That means that when, if you're especially in an apartment complex, you walk down the hallways, they should be safe, they should be well lit. You shouldn't be walking down the hallway and go to, go to go down the stairway and grab the banister and have it fall off. That's not a good idea. That's supposed to be safe and secure. So that's what a landlord's supposed to do. On the other hand, what is a tenant supposed to do? In other words, they have their part. They're supposed to keep their part of the premises as clean and sanitary as possible. They're supposed to dispose of all the garbage. So in other words, they're not supposed to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to put the garbage out. And they don't take it out to the bin, they put it in the hallway. No, that's not what it is. You don't throw it out the window, okay? I remember back in New York, you would see scenes where people would just take at an apartment complex and just start tossing the stuff out the window. And on the side of the apartment building would be just this big mountain of trash. No, you don't do that. Okay. Uh, properly use plumbing, electrical, gas fixtures and keep them clean and in good condition. So in other words, is the tenant the one that's causing this problem? Okay. Um, 
No, uh, not permit any person on the premises uh, to willfully destroy or deface the property. So, in other words, you're responsible when you have guests over. If they decide to put graffiti on the wall, knock holes in the wall, anything else, that's your responsibility as a tenant to pay for and have that corrected. Okay? And finally, occupy the premises for sleeping, cooking, dining, and other purposes for which it was designed and intended only. Don't buy it or don't rent the place and decide that you're going to do motorcycle repair in the living room. Okay? That's not the intended purpose. The intended purpose is for you to live there. Okay? So that's what you want to do. You want to make sure as a tenant that you're doing that. Okay. Let's move on from there. Okay. Oh, by the way, on this, they go through the process of what we call the life of an eviction process. Okay. And this is not as easy, by the way, as it may appear to be. Um, I ran into somebody one time <laughs> that was, these things can turn into sometimes a nightmare. Uh, I ran into somebody uh, actually at a Labu coffee shop here about five, six months ago. And I won't say who it is, but they were telling me about their problem with the tenant. They had had a house that they had had for a number of years that was over off of Howe Avenue, a very nice area they had owned. This person had lived there. This tenant had lived there. Uh, I forget for how long, maybe six months or a year. They decided that they wanted to go ahead, they, that they didn't, weren't going to pay rent anymore for whatever reason. In other words, they weren't going to pay rent. Not because it wasn't kept up. They just weren't going to pay rent. And they weren't going to move out either. And this person that I'm talking about that was experiencing this problem figured, well, you know, I'll go through the normal process of trying to do the eviction. In other words, don't call an attorney. Don't talk to anybody that maybe is knowledgeable in this. Just try to do it yourself. Well, what happened was is the first thing is, is when they tried to contact, you know, they have to start this process and they have to notify them. Well, come to find out that the person turned their phone off, wouldn't accept mail, <laughs> and it just went on down the road. And when I talked to this, this gentleman, he had gone now, I think it was about five or six months and hadn't gotten any rent payment at all, still trying to do it himself, okay? And the point is, is that it can be a very drawn-out process. And, in fact, the day I met him, he was dressed in a suit and a tie. He had just been down to the court. And what was happening is that the tenant was supposed to come in but didn't come in. So now he had to file more paperwork, <laughs> So the fact is, is it can be a very long, drawn-out process to try to get them out. That's why what's more important is you spend the time getting the right tenant in there in the first place. Because, um, you know, if you don't ha you should be spending, emphasizing all that time in the beginning about screening the tenant, making sure it's a good fit. You know, in other words, they're financially qualified, they've got the background, the credit history, and that you think that you and the tenant are going to get along okay. All right? Anyway, just want to mention that to you. Okay, and uh, let me see here. Naturally, move through the book here. Okay, the next thing that we want to talk about after that is the different types of leases that you may have, and it starts on the bottom of this page and connects, uh, continues on the next. But you know, when we talk about lease agreements, we are typically talking about you know, when we're talking right now so far, we've been talking about residential lease and rental agreements. We have not talked about commercial rental agreements. We have not talked about, you know, what, what kind of an agreement you have to have when you're renting space in a shopping center. 
or an office building or anything like that. So now we're going to talk about what they call special purpose leases. And we're going to go through some terms that some of you may or may not have heard before, but we'll go from here. Okay, first of all, there are times when people will want to actually take and sell their building and lease it back. And let me give you an example of that. The example I like to use is this. If you happen to be somebody like uh, a Lowe's or uh, a Walmart or a, um, or a Home Depot, you know, where you have to have a building that is unique, the way you do business. You have to have a loading dock. You have to have a certain height of the building. You have to have certain kinds of storage space, certain kind of power requirements, ventilation. You may find out if you want to locate, say, in the Sacramento area, in a specific part of Sacramento, you may find it difficult to find a building that fits your needs. It just doesn't exist. Okay? Uh, so consequently, what you do is you say, you know, I, I own a business. I want to I locate in Sacramento or in whatever the town is but I can't find a building there. So what I'm going to do is this. It's a good market. It's a good place for me to have my business, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to build the building. So you may very well go out in your department. A lot of these big companies will have real estate departments in them. They'll go out. They'll talk to all the different real estate agents, and they'll go out and they'll locate a site. Once they locate a site, they'll have an architect draw the plans. The architect draws the plans. They get them approved, and they build the building. Now, say it's Home Depot, they get the building that they want, exactly designed the way that they want that building built. So they're happy. But what they do is they say, you know, we have got a lot of money tied up in this building. We paid money for the land, we paid money for the building, and we need to get some of that money back out again so we can go ahead and maybe build another building or maybe pay payroll or do something else. So what they'll do is when they initially start the project, they're what they'll do is they'll say, you know what, we'll build the building. Then what we're going to do is sell the building. Who we're going to sell it to is an investor. That investor will buy that building, and then we will agree to take and rent the building or lease the building back from them for a period of time, say 5, 10, 15 years. Now, the advantage to that is this. First of all, the company like a Home Depot gets exactly built what they want. They get the exact building, right size parking lot, right height of the building and everything. The, the investor that buys it, and we may be talking about a pension plan or a real estate investment trust or a big investor, they're going to get a building that is built well, that has a solid tenant, that's going to rent for a, a specific period of years, and it's going to be a solid, really good investment. So it's a win-win situation in both cases. Home Depot gets the building they want. Okay, they are able to get their money back out again. The investor is able to get a good building, a good solid tenant with a good lease. Okay, so it's a win-win. That's why we would do that. Okay, second kind of a lease is something called a lease with the purchase, uh, a lease with a uh, purchase option. The concept of this is that you, uh, and I'll give you an example of how this may work. You come to say Sacramento. You're coming from another area you know, maybe Southern California, back east, somewhere else. So you're coming to Sacramento. You're going to move to Sacramento. You and your family have driven around Sacramento. You've looked at a lot of different property, and you, you, you finally find this property, and you've looked to maybe buy. You've looked to lease. You've looked to rent. You've looked at a lot of different things. And finally what you do is you say, you know, I found a house that I really, really like. I could even see my family living there. 
But, you know, I'm really not quite sure whether that's the house or I'm really not quite sure whether or not the company is going to keep me here long enough or for whatever reason. I'm not sure about that. So what I would like to do is I would really like to rent the house from you, okay? But I'd also like to have you give me the opportunity that it, within the next two years that I could buy the house if I would like to. And what I'd like to do is we'd like to maybe sit down and set the price and the terms today, okay? Now what ends up happening is, is that, and you may even, if you're the tenant, you may even pay the landlord an extra 50 or 100 bucks a month to do that, okay? Now here's the advantage to both sides. The advantage to the person that owns the property is maybe that property's been on the market for a while and they've had a difficult, they wanted to sell it, they couldn't sell it, and now they're going to end up having to rent it out. So having a tenant move in there that has an interest in eventually buying it is good. You know, they're probably going to take care of it, keep it up, so on and so forth. If the tenant also gives them money, you know, says, listen, I'll sweeten the pot a little bit. I'll give you a little extra money that, hey, you know, this, instead you wanted 1500 a month rent, I'll give you 1600 a month rent. The only thing I ask you to do is that if I do exercise that option to buy, that I'm allowed to go ahead and use that money, that extra money I've given you as part of, to prove that that's part of my down payment. So landlords say, this is a great deal. Now, what's the advantage to the tenant? The advantage to the tenant is that they're able to move into the house. They have a place to live. Now that they have an option, and an option means that they don't have to do this. It's their option. They can decide to exercise it and buy, exercise it, and buy it, or they could decide not to do that. What this means is that if the house goes up dramatically in value over the next two years, or whatever the option period of time is, they still can buy it at the price they originally negotiated if they were smart enough to negotiate it that way. So maybe the house was originally going to sell for $300,000, and that's what they negotiated. They've been renting for a couple years. They decide to exercise the option. When they decide to exercise it, maybe the house has gone from three hundred to $350,000, but they still can buy it for $300,000. So they've actually leveraged <laughs> their investment with a very small amount of contribution. Okay, That's called a lease with an option to buy. Okay. Um, Next thing you have is something called a ground lease. A ground lease is something where you may very well have a parcel of land. You see this sometimes in a downtown area where, for example, a person, like say a dentist office, he goes and he rents there and he says, you know what, I'm renting here for a while. When I first got my practice going, I didn't have that many patients. Now all of a sudden I got a lot of patients. I have no place for them to park. I notice that there's a space or a parking lot down the street, across the street, next to the building, somewhere close to the building. What I'm going to do is go over to the tent, to the landlord and ask them if I can rent that space, which might be right now just some gravel space, to allow my patients to have a place to park. Okay. Now, what's the advantage to that? The advantage to the person that owns that dentist is he now has a place for his patients to park. What's the advantage to the, to the owner of the property? They're now producing income from a piece of land that's just sitting there. So they're getting some kind of income coming in from it. So that would be like a ground lease. That would be an example of a ground lease. You also can have a release that's a graduated lease. What a graduated lease is is that you initially negotiated at a certain price. So, for example, you may have an office that you're going to rent, office space. The space is 1,000 square feet. You're going to pay so much per month. 
and what you're going to do under a graduated lease agreement, you would probably be signing something that say, you know, after one year, two years, some period of time, the landlord is going to have the authority or the right to raise the rent. Okay, maybe you're originally paying, I don't know, maybe you're paying $1,000 a month. After one year, maybe it's going to go to eleven or $1,200 a month. And there could be a lot of reasons why you would do that. The landlord, for example, may negotiate that maybe during the time that he initially negotiates that lease, maybe office, there's tons of office space on the market. And he wants to find some way to get you in there. And what he does is he offers you a lease that's below market and says, listen, I'm going to rent it to you for the first year for $1,000 a month. You know, it should really be going for about 12 or 13 but I'm going to give you $1,000 a month if you move in today. Okay, but then at the end of the first year, I'm going to go ahead and raise it up. And the guy says, hey, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. You know, I get the rent cheaper for the first year. I'll move in. Okay, now we may use a lot of different, we may just automatically build into that what the increase in rent's going to be, or we may look at an index. We may say we're going to raise it based on the consumer price index or the rate of inflation or something. Okay, but the idea is that it stair steps or graduates. The next one is something called a gross lease income property. What we're talking about here on income property, on a single-family home or a townhouse or a condominium, most of the time we are doing some kind of a gross lease. What that means is we as the tenant pay the landlord a certain amount of money. When the landlord receives that, they pay the mortgage payment, the principal and interest, they pay the taxes on the property, they pay the insurance, they pay all the repairs, all the maintenance and everything. I as the tenant, the only obligation I have to worry about is my own utility bills, like, you know, PG&E, SMUD, you know, stuff like that, and my rent. I don't have to worry about repairs or anything or taxes. It's all taken care of. When I pay the landlord, I know that's it. That's a gross lease. You can also have, if you can't have a gross, you can have what we call a net lease. This, again, is in commercial buildings. If you look in the Sacramento Bee, you'll see where they'll talk about property that's for lease, commercial land property, that'll talk about a net lease or a triple net lease. What that essentially means is that you rent the property as the tenant, but what you agree to is you're going to pay the landlord a certain amount of money, but you will do things like you will pay the property taxes, you'll pay the insurance, you'll take care of the repairs. Okay, it's called the triple net lease. Okay. Um, typically, the people that want to have a triple net lease on the landlord part is they really don't have to worry about anything. Everything is whatever they get their rent check. You know, they're not having to worry about maintenance and things like that. Okay. Uh, percentage lease is another thing that you're going to run into, which is going to be in the retail area. And this not only goes to like shopping malls, you know, like Sunrise Mall, Arden Fair Mall, and stuff like that, but also strip malls or where you see things like maybe a Raleigh shopping center or something. And here's the concept you're going to rent somebody some space, like retail space. Typically, it's almost always, I believe, retail where you see this. And you're going to charge them, you know, $2,000 a month, okay? And what's going to happen is you're always going to pay that $2,000 a month. But if your gross sales exceeds a certain amount, then the landlord is going to ask you to pay them a certain percentage above your base lease. Now, you may go, why would you do that? And the reason why is because, because if you think about it for a minute, if you take a look at a lot of retail space, say like any of the shopping centers, the next time Christmas comes around, you think about this. Right now, 
people are kind of going in and out of the shopping areas, buying stuff. Then all of a sudden we have Thanksgiving hits. Usually at Thanksgiving, all of a sudden, the malls, all the shopping centers are very, very busy. Okay? They produce a lot of business. In fact, they say most of the income that those companies make are during that short period of time. What happens is at the end of Christmas, all of a sudden, you know, except for, you know, returns, in other words, Santa Claus brought the wrong present, you know, and people bring it back, but usually after the first few weeks of January, you walk in the malls and they're dead. Nobody's in there. Then all of a sudden you go in there around maybe March, April, and you start seeing there's an art show there. Maybe if it's Art and Fair Mall, they maybe brought in cars. They did all kinds of things. Well, what they're doing that for is to get the foot traffic up because they know if they generate enough people walking through the mall, that will stimulate sales. People will buy stuff. Okay? So the real incentive to me or the way I think about it is the real incentive to the retail uh, percentage of sales is that the, that the landlord is trying to do things to promote the entire shopping center. In other words, they have, a, they, they have an interest in it because if that center sells more stuff, they make more money. Okay? So that's why they would want to do that. Okay? Okay, so that takes care of that. Okay? couple more things we want to mention because we're getting pretty close to the end here is property management. If you are going to do property management and there are companies where you could be a real estate agent and you're never going to sell anything, you're just going to manage properties. You're going to have landlords as your clients. You're going to be showing properties. They may be apartment houses. You may be hiring apartment managers. You may be doing single-family homes, townhouses, condominiums. And you're going to be the one that the landlord calls up and says, you know, could you please help me rent my place? And you're going to be hired by them to go ahead and do that. Okay? Um, what's going to happen is that you're going to have a management contract, which I'll just flip over and show you in a minute, that you'll sign that will outline what your responsibilities are going to be, what your compensation is going to be, so on and so forth. Okay? And on this page here, it gives you an example of this property management agreement. Now, there's not enough time for me to go over this in detail, but what I want to do is show you again. This is prepared by and reviewed by the California Association of Realtors, which has stacks of forms. If you ever want to see the forms, go over to the, you know, the, the Sacramento Association of Realtors over on 2003 Howe Avenue, which is on the corner of Howe and Cottage, I believe. It has a retail little store there in the uh, downstairs that you can go in and see all the forms that they have. You can buy these paper product forms, although most people are using a program called WinForms, a computer program to generate these now, but you can buy the paper forms. Okay, this is a management property management agreement, and what this essentially does is I'm going to kind of leave it up like this because I know you can see it in the book, but basically what this is doing is, first of all, the owner of the property is appointing the broker to represent them. That's what this whole paragraph has to do with. This is the broker's acceptance, and then this is giving the authority to the broker to do these things for the owner, such as the authority to advertise the property to find tenants, the authority to have a rental and a leasing agreement, the authority to do things like terminate it if necessary, you know, in other words, to, to have the tenants removed. The authority to do things like up to a certain amount of money to pay for or hire somebody to do repair. 
you may give, if you're the manager of this, you may have the authority to spend up to, say, $500 to do repair work without getting the owner's authorization to do that. Okay, so they'll specifically identify what that is. You'll be talked about things such as um, expense payments, security deposits, all those different things they're going to talk about here, what you're going to be authorized to do. It's very, very important that you know what you're authorized to do. I'm going to flip over here to this side on the other side of the contract, and I want you, you should be reading this stuff so that you know what you would be signing. This side right here talks about the owner's responsibilities, what the owner is responsible for, such as making sure they provide all the appropriate documentation. If there's homeowners associations, any rules, regulations, they need to provide all that. And that's all given in this paragraph what the owner's responsibility is. And probably, uh, I want to mention this. This is the compensation part. This is talking about what you as, and I'm going to blow this up a little bit because I know this may interest people. This is talking about how you are going to get paid for your work. So this is going to talk about what you're going to get paid for management, renting and leasing, evictions, uh, uh, preparing any kind of property or lease agreement. So this is identifying all those different activities that you as the agent may do and what you would charge to get paid for it. For example, you may find out that you're going to get paid a fee to take and show the property to a tenant and find a tenant. You're going to get paid a certain amount of money. That might be like maybe thir uh, a third of the first month's rent or half of the first month's rent. I'm just throwing these figures out. That might be your compensation. Then as you collect the rent every, every month, you're going to get a certain amount of that rental payment to you or the firm. If you have to do any additional activities, such as all of a sudden you have to go over there and start meeting with a contractor and showing them that there's a problem, you may say, when I do that, I'm going to be compensated. I'm going to be paid for that, okay? So you want to know, you want to know what you're going to be paid for, and the landlord needs to know that they don't get some kind of a strange bill and find out that old Pat was over there showing the contractor what to do is going to send me a bill or take something out of the rent. You know, oh, listen, every time I go over there and meet the contractor, I'm going to charge you, you know, $100. So the landlord needs to know what are they really going to get paid, you know, what are they going to get charged for. It becomes very, very important, okay? So, again, we want to make sure that you've, you read that agreement and you understand uh, what's involved with it. Your tenant, you're going to want to know so you can explain to the landlord what they're paying for. You want to know what services you're going to provide, how you're going to provide it, where your trust accounts are going to be, how you're going to get the rent to them, how you're going to do all that kind of stuff. So with that, we're pretty close to the end of show six. Again, I want to emphasize that what you should be doing now, um, the old broken record, you should be downloading that study guide, looking that stuff up. Remember, we want to see people get 100 on that exam. None of that 95 stuff, you know, 100 on that exam. Look them up. Make sure you know the answers when you come in. With that, thank you very much, and we'll see you back here again for show number seven.